0: Welcome to Looks Like New, on KGN News, it's the economy. I am Bushra Batlouni. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology, even addressing questions that should have been asked a long time ago. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Events and news from countries outside of North America or Western Europe, especially news from the Arab world, tend to come in edited fragments of dramatic spectacle. Now, these media fragments are useful in that they inform us about what is happening around the globe. The problem is that they also often oversimplify complex situations. In today's episode, we will try to re-inject some of that lost nuance into the conversation about the Arab world by focusing on the country of Lebanon. Lebanon has come up a lot in recent global media coverage. I am a Lebanese PhD student here in the US, and the past couple of years have been nothing short of surreal. I watched my country, friends, and family go through one cataclysmic event after the other. The first was in October of 2019, when in response to long-term government corruption and tax increases, a huge mass protest broke out brought together the divided and sectarian communities of Lebanon to demand change. The protests were barely reported on in the mainstream media here in the US, so I spent days and weeks watching the revolution unfold through my smartphone screen. The lack of responsiveness by the Lebanese political elite, coupled with COVID lockdowns, fizzled away most of the joyous momentum and energy of the protests. Many Lebanese felt an intense sense of disillusionment and defeat that despite months of being on the streets, they had nothing to show for it. Then, on August 4th of 2020, I woke up to the sound of notifications from WhatsApp. Friends and family were sending me videos of a massive explosion in the port of Beirut that had leveled a third of the capital city, killed over 200 people, destroyed lives, livelihoods and futures. But things didn't end there. The explosion accelerated an ongoing economic crisis and pushed it into a full-blown economic collapse, one which the World Bank has ranked in the world's top three worst economic crises since the 19th century. But with each catastrophic chain of events, new, creative, and brave voices appeared on different platforms, and with them, new ways of dealing with successive catastrophes. To help us understand and explore the complex and fascinating interconnections between Lebanese media, politics, and culture, we are joined by our award-winning guest, Dr. Murwan Kreidi. Dr. Kreidi is the CEO and Dean of Northwestern University in Qatar and leading authority on Arab media with numerous books and publications on the Arab region and its media cultures. Dr. Kreidi, it's a pleasure to have you here with us. I thought it might be a good idea for us to begin by situating the Lebanese media for our audience, perhaps not only in terms of its national context, but also the broader regional Arab context. For example, one of the things that's considered unique about Lebanon in relation to the region is the idea that Lebanon is more politically liberal than its Arab neighbors, especially when it comes to issues such as freedom of speech. Now, many consider this a myth, how would you describe the different roles that the Lebanese media has played within Lebanon and across the Arab world, and how is this relationship connected to the structure of the Lebanese political system?
1: Thank you. Um, it's a it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, uh, people talk about uh, when they talk about Lebanese media, uh, of course, is this is this uh, a notion of media freedom of media autonomy. Now, anywhere in the world, uh, media freedom and media autonomy is more of a normative. Uh, Objective, right to reach than than a reality. There's always some limit. There's always some constraint. Um, Some people do often romanticize Lebanon as the place where uh, the media were free until they were not. Um, And I think you know we're 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 academics and we're scholars of the region, so it's probably good to sort of demystify some of these narratives. So historically speaking, of course, um, Lebanon did play an important role. Um, 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 as early as the Ottoman Empire um, in in printing. And as a result, even if you look at the early 1900s, you had newspapers um, um, all over the Arab world started by sort of Lebanese printers slash journalists slash writers. That was all mixed, right? And so there's a history that led to, uh, for example, the establishment of of a venerable newspaper like Al-Ahram in Egypt. Uh, but in Lebanon proper, there, because of the sheer complexity of Lebanese society and its political fabric, um, the media reflect that. So very early on, you have several phenomena. Number one, you have, as I mentioned, the utter diversity. I mean, we, we always say there's um, about a dozen and a half ethnic slash um, religious uh, slash sectarian groups recognized uh, by by officially in Lebanon. And they all have their media. Added to this, you had different waves of immigration um, into Lebanon. So for example, um, Armenians in Lebanon have their media. You also um, need to add the fact that during the war, every militia developed an outlet, right? So now we're talking about, we're moving into the the 70s and the 80s um, in Lebanon. Uh, I mean, Lebanon is tiny, right? For an American audience, it's it's about half the size of New Jersey. At some point um, during the war, uh, by the late 80s, 1980s, so the war officially ended um, in the early 90s, you had so many television channels that um, several of us who wrote about the phenomenon called unlicensed because they were not quite illegal. They were clandestine when they started, and then they somehow got sort of normalized and regulated in the process. But there were so many signals that even the International Telecommunications Union would get complaints that the whole spectrum was jammed. Now, That is good, but that is also bad. That is good because you truly have a multiplicity of voices. I remember growing up in Lebanon and at some point you could watch anything from um, a religious program and religious. It could be uh, Christian or Muslim. And within those, it could be a bunch of different things to um, you could have a program um, um, that's unabashedly leftist or even communist to a lot of the kind of using of women's bodies that really amounted to soft pornography at some point, to games and songs and sermons and to sort of straightforward political propaganda, right? So that's, in, in, in a sense, um, that's good because you have really a very wide gamut of, of discourse but uh, it's not always the case that more channels mean more discourse, right? Because if every political channel, let's say, says the same to its own community, then that's fragmentation rather than, than, than pluralism or democracy, right? It's almost too much of a good thing. Now, if you compare it to some of the Arab countries back then, yes, there were more opinions. Um, Lebanon, Kuwait, and Morocco had had probably into the early 90s, the more quote-unquote liberal uh, media systems um, in 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 Arabic, um, Arabophone media systems. Um, and so, yes, Lebanon does have a distinctive tradition, uh, but that distinctive tradition tends to be romanticized more than it should. And at the same time, now, the demise of, of a tradition that used to be romanticized tend to be lamented more than it should.
0: Right. There was this, like you said, romanticization of the Lebanese media culture, that there was room for so many different voices. But the truth is that that was not necessarily accurate. The particular form of pluralism in Lebanon at the time led more most likely to fragmentation than to the creation of this genuine diversity of opinions and perspectives. Absolutely. So in relation to the Arab world, how might we situate Lebanon currently or in the more recent couple of decades?
1: You know, it's 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 very different. It's very difficult to situate Lebanon now, uh, because now Lebanon is experiencing a case of total collapse. It's very rare that this happens to uh, to uh, to an to an entire nation state, right? Um, and and of course, the media are part of this. Uh, you and I both know there are um, some of the best uh, established, longest existing media in Lebanon have not paid their employees in years. Um, we have uh, a sort of a crisis of legacy media, newspapers and sort of traditional broadcasting, even satcasting um, is experiencing a crisis. Uh, I do think it's experiencing its last day as the dominant, right? So when we speak of mainstream and alternative, um, you know the the, the the alternative is go is becoming the mainstream. And at the same time, so if you look at it, you know you had until the um, until the eighties, you had a state monopoly on television and, and, and radio to some extent. It blew up during the Civil War where you had hundreds of radio channels, um, close to a couple of hundred um, television channels. Then it got regulated with the Taif Agreement in the early to mid-90s. Um, and then what you have, you had, a, you had sort of um, the so-called Independence Antifada or, or the Cedar Revolution um, in, in 2004. Uh, what am I saying? Um, was it 2004? It's two thousand and five, I think yeah, right and, uh, and and this is when that's the decade when blogs appeared on the scene and then um, um, and then about ten years later, um, that's when you have social media and social media native media outlets that were born online embedded in social media from the very beginning right and and, and, and what you see there is all kinds of different attempts for the legacy media to co-opt. These rising uh, media, because that's where the attention is, because that's where the real reporting is, because most of these, or at least the most important of these new media don't serve a a clear master. They don't serve a warlord, become politician. They don't serve a traditional za'im. They don't uh, uh, serve a traditional religious group, right? They're much more, uh, as much as I don't like the word, they're much more civil society creatures,
0: Yes, and even within those, you end up seeing different, broader political leanings and perspectives, rather than the more usual affiliations with the political groups or the national sectarian political parties.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you do see a general disgust uh, with the sectarian, um, with sort of consociational confessionalism, um, the structure that has ruled Lebanon for so long. Uh, You do see a very clear impetus towards the secular, um, towards um, at least, um, if not secular, then non, um, um, no sectarian identification of these outlets. Uh, You do see also a a contrarian attitude in general, which is a lot of these are not afraid of saying things as they are. They tend to be pretty confrontational. Um, And so uh, the problem is how, how far will they be able to go and how much will they survive in the current situation?
0: that's also very important in relation to what has been happening more recently in the country and um, if we were to look back at the past two or three years so one of the main things that had happened in lebanon was that in 2019 there was a massive protest some called it the october revolution and the initial media reports about the protests uh, focused most of their focus was on the idea that the main reason behind these protests was the WhatsApp tax that was proposed by the Lebanese government. And at some point it was called the WhatsApp protest. So my question is what kinds of ideas do these narratives create about the Arab world's relationship to technology, especially social media?
1: Yes. So, so there, I think there are a couple of issues. Um, first of all, it's no, it's no mystery to anyone that there's a narrative about the Arab world um, that I um, trace all the way back, um, at least in scholarship to Daniel Lerner's book, The Passing of Traditional Society, where somehow, you know, the Arab world slash the Middle East, Muslim societies, somehow they need Western gadgets um, uh, for them to develop, for things to change, right? And so that's why, for example, um, to me, when you saw the, you know, Tunisia, is the Twitter revolution in Egypt. And we're talking about the Arab uprising. Egypt was the Facebook revolution. And so uh, when I saw, again, Lebanon uh, identified um, um, the the sort of um, the October uprising, I still, I don't like the word revolution because a revolution technically concludes and reaches some of its objectives, right? Um, so when I saw the focus on WhatsApp, uh, I'm like, of course, that's what they're going to do. They're going to completely oversimplify a narrative to a little gadget. However, having said this, I think here's what's important to parse out. So I, I wrote a piece about this in, um, uh, for, for current history, but I argued two things. One of them, um, the reason WhatsApp is important as WhatsApp is not because of what it does, because of, but because of what it represents. What it represents is a technology that was folded in the everyday life, the banal, mundane conduct of very basic transactions necessary for your life.
0: Yeah, I was looking up the numbers on how many people in Lebanon use WhatsApp, and it's over 92% who use it as a primary means of communication. And that is something that is often lost in this conversation about about this app.
1: I mean, and, and, you know, so WhatsApp, for um, our U.S. listeners, WhatsApp may not be very popular in, in the U.S., but in, in many parts of the world, it's, 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 a, it's a pretty dominant app. And so if you are a, um, a taxi driver, you conduct all your business, maybe in some cases most, through WhatsApp. So as you know, taxi drivers in Lebanon, they do WhatsApp voice because they can just click and speak. If you are a delivery person, uh, you work WhatsApp. Even for people who, are, who have managerial level jobs, WhatsApp is absolutely central to their work. WhatsApp is how people communicate. Um, uh, partly it's because of the app has been very popular for a variety of reasons. One of them um, is it's cheap, right? If it's on Wi-Fi, you don't pay anything. Um, Now, other countries also throttle WhatsApp, right? Because it competes with state uh, monopolies or with corporate um, um, seller providers. Mm -hmm. But I think in Lebanon, the notion that something that, that was seen as fundamental, basic, simple commodity that's necessary for daily life, that suddenly they're being asked to pay for it. I think that, that, that was um, the straw that broke the camel's back. So it wasn't WhatsApp as WhatsApp, it's WhatsApp in what it represents and in, as a culmination of a variety of daily humiliations and frustrations that culminated in that, in that moment
0: yeah and i think what is often forgotten in this narrative is that only a few days before the government decided to implement the whatsapp tax proposal there was a huge fire in lebanon which decimated the forests and the mountains i mean a large part of my uncle's house burned in those fires And the people were incredibly frustrated at the incompetence in handling the situation, that the government could not even perform its most basic duties. Like they couldn't even get the helicopters to work because they ignored their maintenance for so many years. So yeah, the WhatsApp tax was, like you said, just putting more salt on the wound.
1: Absolutely. Um, There were almost like, what, 150 fires. I mean, the fires were very suspicious, right? This is not conspiracy uh, mongering, uh, but to have that many fires in that small, concentrated swath of territory happening at the same time um, is a bit is is statistically aberrant. Let's put it this way, right? Uh, But but as you said, it exposed the inability of the government uh, to provide because to provide basic protections for the population, because helicopter parts were missing, so on and so forth. One of the most important things about about any kind of uprising, is that was 2019. That was almost, what, 14 years after the Independence Intifada in downtown Beirut. The Independence Intifada was very quickly co-opted by sectarian forces, despite all the romanticization of people of different religions working together, blah, 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 blah. And so there's a very important thing here that not enough people have focused on, which is the generational difference. So um, um, an 18-year-old who was on the streets in October 2019 was four years old during the last major previous protests, right? And I think um, I see this as both problematic and hopeful. It's problematic because a lot of the people did not have the experience of activism and protest uh, to be able to, to, to actually trigger real change. Right, and and we know that's the problem with uh, mobilization, organization through social media. You can create change of a very immediate term, uh, but then you cannot turn that into institution building. For example, right. But I think the more interesting part, and I know this is something you wanted to get to, is you know the all the the creativity that exploded, uh, and that's what um, in 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 the naked blogger of Cairo I call creative insurgency. Right, which is. You bring every piece of originality, of artfulness, of creativity that you have, and you mobilize it in favor of this political cause. It has to be visible. It has to be attractive. It has to be um, understandable uh, uh, by people. And so this is when we saw a lot of the whether they're handheld signs or uh, digital memes, um, um, that 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 focus on these things. And I think that's that's a very interesting phenomenon, because I think. Because of the huge archive of the internet and social media and all that, this is how different generations learn and draw on the sort of, uh, you know, what social movement scholars call called the repertoires of intention. Of so I find that quite interesting.
2: You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick
1: with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio.
2: We're having a conversation with Dr. Marwan Grady about what has happened in Lebanon.
0: Yeah, because I remember the 2005 protests, and I think I was like 16 or 17 years old at the time. And there was that same kind of creativity that we were talking about that, you know, graffiti, music or art in general. But there's more difficulty in going back and finding these different cultural productions that represent that moment, whereas now there is a much larger internet archive, or as you called it, a repertoire that allows you to go back and sense what we can call structures of feeling within that sphere or in that particular moment of time. And a lot of that has to do with the immediate access to media coverage. Um, And I want to move on to this idea of global coverage of media with a focus on the Beirut explosion? Because to me, it seemed like the way that the media kind of uh, framed the Beirut explosion, it was a media event of sort. We got maybe two weeks of intense focus on the tragedy of the explosion, and then it disappeared completely from the news. Um, How would you describe this coming together of Geopolitics and media spectacle in relation to Lebanon, but also more broadly to the Arab world.
1: So, you know, the August uh, was it August four um, explosion uh, in Beirut, which is one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in history, is is the kind of event that brings about all the superlatives, all the extreme words, right? Something like this has never happened before, or has rarely happened before. I mean, we know there have been explosions in history that's been a lot more powerful, but. To cut a long story short, what makes this a particularly poignant event? One, of course, is that it came on the heels of like wave after wave after wave of disaster in Lebanon, right? You have protests, you have COVID, you have an economic fiscal slash financial crisis. Um, You have the ability of people to cope with any challenge was whittled down to almost nothing. And then you have a major explosion that killed a bunch of people. And I think more importantly, that um, created in one image or set of images, because really what circulated were a lot of videos, almost that encapsulated and captured everything that was going wrong with Lebanon, right? It's almost the the proverbial, you know, a lot of stuff is happening under the earth's crust, and then the volcano erupts, right? So in, in some ways, It was the climax of a narrative of disaster and catastrophe and destruction and and loss of life and devastation.
0: I like how you phrased that, that underneath that volcano, there was a series of events occurring. And, you know, talking to friends during the protests, because I was here in the States, um, something was happening with the people there. Their emotions were just... Their emotions were riding high and low continuously, and they were exhausted from from that, um, you know, roller coaster of emotions. And then came COVID, and after that, you had the explosion and the economic collapse, right? And, but still, in the global media coverage, a lot of times this is what's missing in the story this is not necessarily told or it's not necessarily told as as a unique uh, issue um you know we don't have the narrative of you know there was lots of stuff happening that led up to this it was not just a thing that happened um so i was wondering what you think the what is the effect of that of telling half a story essentially in shaping the perceptions about that particular region of the world
1: well, look, I mean, first of all, of course, this is Lebanon. So uh, when something violent, disruptive happens, the media will focus on it because that's a, that's a very prevalent narrative. I think also, I mean, we have to understand uh, sort of um, the global news industry. I have no compunction calling it this way because that's what it has become. Um, where you, you don't have sustained coverage. Um, like if you look in the US or in Europe, you don't have sustained coverage of international and in international news, Right. And so of course, but this was a major event. So what happens, it becomes a magnet. Every lens in the world, every writer, I mean, I had people, I got invited to write all kinds of things, and I said, look, I'm I'm really I'm I'm still under the shock. I have nothing of significance to say. But everybody jumped on the bandwagon, right? To to um and and, and what that does really it in some ways demeaning demeans the the suffering of the people who got the brunt, because who got the brunt of the event? Uh, a lot of um, innocent civilians who lived in Beirut, many of them poor, uh, right? Not all Lebanese. Uh, we had some, 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 uh, um, some Syrians, um, but people who, whose life was already quite precarious, right? So there yeah. is that. And then what really infuriated me personally is the immediate, I mean, of course it's going to happen, but it's still infuriating the immediate attempt to score political points through the suffering of people, through this globally hyper-mediatized explosion, right? Uh, uh, but I have to say, the event itself was distinctive. You know, um, I I've, I I know you want to uh, um, talk about this a little later, but, you know, uh, when I wrote, when I described ISIS's images as projectilic images, as images that that imitate bullets and arrows and rockets, that images that are designed to cause psychic harm. They're not designed to represent anything. They're not designed to convey a message as much as they're designed to hurt. When I first saw, you know, I first got a glimpse of it on Twitter. Several people I follow, uh, I was looking at Twitter. I was in an Uber, I think. And um, people are saying, did you hear, did you hear? And then the video started streaming. I had sort of a recoil. Like I'm looking at my phone and my head is doing this. And of course, you know, if you grow up in Lebanon during the war, you can almost remember life as a series of explosions. This is when they tried to assassinate this politician. This is when the rocket fell on your building. Uh, this is when, you know, this was um, uh, the bombing of this and that. This was the battle between the, right? And so, again, it was a major event, but it was it's best understood as the culmination of a series of events that it brought all together.
0: I remember watching it and you do get a visceral reaction to seeing that explosion and the mayhem after it and it's an experience that you can immediately contextualize within the much larger history and you know you can yeah. understand its meaning but it's also interesting because i was watching it while i was in the us and seeing how it was dealt with in the media coverage it bothered me because there was this immense sense of isolation you know you have to come to terms with how to others these things were happening in such a faraway place, they might as well be happening on a different planet. You know, the sense that people think that they don't really affect anyone, they don't, it doesn't affect them. And you really want to just say to people, no, you don't understand this wrecked an entire city, almost a third of Beirut was destroyed. And it's not just buildings, it destroyed a culture within the city as well. And then like you said, it was just used to score political points. Um, And, um, One event after the explosion that I find a little bit absurd was when President Macron came to Lebanon after the explosion. And he met with the people on the streets. And he also met with Fayrouz at her home. Uh, Fayrouz, who's sort of a media and cultural icon for the Lebanese and Arabs, more broadly. And I was wondering what your thoughts were on that.
1: Yeah, Well, you know, like, 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 I mean, Macron, here's the thing. I do think. uh, Macron was trying to wash all his problems in France by a visit to Lebanon, where he knew he could count on the adulation among some circles. Now, um, Faerouz is one of these hallowed figure, right? So being associated with her cannot bring you any negative. Right? So the fact that he went uh, and I remember, you know, the picture um, in her living room, the fact that the president of a country that used to be the colonial power would go to the house of, of, of a singer. Right. Uh, is, is quite significant. Let's not let's not pretend it's not. At the same time, it was a gesture to a Lebanon that everybody romanticized, but everyone knows no longer exists. Right. Um, and then you get all the other sort of almost pathological um, manifestations of despair you know the the sort of colonial french flag for lebanon reappeared and um, you know the a few people who said to macron please we want france to come back and rule us i mean all this sort of um, it's a it's a uh, it's a performance of despair that goes really south
0: yeah and i think uh, that this is something that uh, people kind of misconstrue as something more than what it is. They see these, what you called as performances of despair, but instead of understanding them for what they are, they react to them as though they are a reality instead of simply an actual human reaction to a very intense moment in people's lives who often feel like they have no options anymore. Um, so I'd like to I'd like to move on to, to something that you mentioned earlier, uh, the concept of fire. And this has come up in some of your recent work, you developed this concept of mediated fire in the context of ISIS. Right? Um, can you explain to us what that concept is exactly?
1: Yeah, So you know, so 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 uh, uh, fire, of course, is one of the uh, uh, one of the basic elements of life. Right? And and so fire has there's a very wide um, 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 documentation. Of how fundamental fire was to groups and cultures across time and space, across geography and history. Let's put it this way, um, and so it's no wonder that that fire can play a very important communicative role, right? I began getting really interested in fire with um, um, as as sort of an academic issue. Clearly, I've always loved fire. I um, 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 at home when I was in the U.S. I would build a fire almost every night outside in the winter. So so to me, why? Because I feel it's an incredible way to think. It's an incredible catalyst of thinking for me, right? Then I start reading about it. When do I start reading? When does it become an academic issue? When I write about Muhammad Bouazizi. So self-immolation as an act is is fundamentally different from other kinds of 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 self harm or suicide, right? It's why uh, number one, it's extremely performative. It attracts attention at a visceral level. People uh, cannot help but look at fire, particularly if the human body is the combustible. And it's almost it's a it's a visceral, hideous, beautiful, um, um, tantalizing spectacle, uh, a multimedia spectacle because you hear fire. I mean, if you if you've been around fire, right, fire has an incredible sort of, um, um, sort of um, um, soundscape to it, right?
0: Right, absolutely. I mean, we can see it in something as simple as when people put those uh, videos with the fireplace in the background, that kind of
1: thing. Exactly, right? Um, you also get the smell of the combustible, in this case, human flesh. Imagine how horrible that must be. So so I began be, uh, becoming interested and in, in really basically... Um, Self-immolation, once, it's, um, once the mise-en-scene is done well, and once it's done uh, in a specific locations for political purposes, is the kind of speech act that compels an answer, that compels people to follow. So if somebody burns themselves, the others feel, well, the least I can do is go and walk down the street and protest. right? So, so this, is, this is what began as an interest. Then when I started, um, so I was finishing, I was in the Netherlands. I was finishing, uh, um, I'm the Naked Blogger of Cairo. Uh, I was finishing the first draft of it actually that week. And then um, I was at the Netherlands Institute for Advanced Study, and, which is in, 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 in the rural Netherlands. Now it's moved. But anyway, this colleague runs into my, uh, my, my, my office, knocks on the door and said, you have to come see this. So I go to his office and that's when uh, the burning of the, uh, jo- the Jordanian pilot in a cage had happened. That was, of course, an extremely different use of fire, much more destructive. So this is how I became interested. Now, as you read and as you you um, 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 you look at it, uh, the book has actually morphed into uh, fire as not only an elemental expression of, of hatred, um, basically the medium par excellence of hatred, uh, but also fire as a harbinger of a new kind of geopolitics. Which you know, it's so it's, it's it it really connects media to a much broader uh, historical political context, global.
0: And how does it do that? How does uh, FIRE uh, connect media to a broader historical and political context exactly?
1: So I'll give you a couple of examples. If you look, um, um, first of all, because um, ISIS is not, it's not unique at all in its use of FIRE, right? If you look at various uh, white power groups in the U.S., for example, I mean, FIRE is fundamental to Ku Klux Klan communication, for example. Why, right? Well, um, it's because in my for my interest, uh, it's because fire allows you to cleave the world in two things: um, what you love and what you hate, the self, the other. Right? It, it uh, fire fire is very very drastic in the way it, it splits the world in two. Fire is the only element that is born as it dies and dies as it is born. Try to grab, right? It has no, the materiality of it is extremely elusive.
0: Right, and that's so, what makes
1: it such a useful and powerful metaphor. Absolutely, you know? And then all this was brought home to me when I reread, because I had read it before and completely missed all of this, uh, was Gaston Bachelard's work on fire, right? Where he he says that fire is, of all the images, it's the most powerful catalyst Um um, of 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 what he calls reverie, and it's the most powerful catalyst of our imagination. So fire pushes you to imagine things, to see things in very grandiose terms. Most importantly, fire makes you feel things. Okay. So so what I what I what I thought I would do is if you look at for example the literature in um, act, actor network theory, particularly Bruno Latour's work. Um, mm. He he makes a difference between the mediator, a mediator, and inter, the intermediary is something that intermediates between A and B. So you know uh, you put in you put in uh, um, um, coffee beans, you're gonna get ground coffee, right? A mediator, on the other hand, creates unpredictability about what's gonna kind of come out, what's the output once you put in an input. And I think that's fire, right? Because fire um, is um, you can use it for very positive. Uh, for a very positive impact and you can use it for a terrifying impact right and you never know which it is so sort of the grand theory that i'm that i'm sort of if if there is such a thing of the project is that fire is a great affective manipulator
0: oh okay so one of the things you are saying about fire is not just that it's a metaphor that it can actually change how we look at a specific image completely did i get that right
1: it's yes it's a metaphor, but it's also a it's also a weapon of war. Let's not ignore that. It's also a, a, a communicative device, right? And it's also a matter.
0: One quick question: How would we describe affect? Because it can be such an elusive term, especially in academia, depending on the field or discipline. Uh, and we kind of very generally think of affect to mean feeling, but it's it's not just. Feeling—it's something else as well, right?
1: Look, um, so so I, I, you know, there's there, there are all kinds of theories of affect, and mm-hmm. um, sort of what I what I'm interested in is how do certain things cross barriers of culture and language um, and context and and trigger reactions in you. Right, so you have a variety of schools of affect, and I've I, I, I've learned a lot um, 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 about these uh, through working with my PhD student Heather Jabber at at, at Penn, um, who's who's finishing her dissertation um, as we speak. And so you have the people who argue that affect is is not emotion; it's pre-emotional intensities. It's the kind of things you feel in your skin. It's an intensity. It's um, um, different temperatures changing in your body, um, feelings on your skin before you can translate them into language. I mean, there are lots of ways to, to, um, to think of affect. Um, I think of affect basically as a realm of feelings, emotions, um, um, sentiments, and intensities. I do think the body is fundamental to affect, but I don't argue that um, representation and culture don't have a place in our understanding of affect.
0: Okay, yeah. Um, and how do you see mediated fire in relation to affect? So how, how can it be understood in relation to affect?
1: Well, your first relationship to fire is one of fear. I mean, this is something that Bachelard captures in his work. The first forbidden thing for children around the world, maybe not so much anymore, uh, but, but, but at least if you go back a century, was don't touch the fire right because people cooked on a fire heated their abode uh, with fire you touch the fire you're gonna burn yourself you're gonna hurt right
0: so, so, mm-hmm. and uh, even in our religions especially those from our region fire is usually central um, whether it's in relation to hell or the burning bush or um, etc
1: right and so so in the book i have a chapter about notions of of hell um and uh, at least in the sort of monotheistic religions of, of the Middle East, right, um, 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 Judaism, um, um, Christianity, and Islam, for example, fire is a fundamental trope. Fire is, um, and, it's, and some of the stuff is absolutely beautiful, right? Uh, descriptions of, in some of the eschatological literature, descriptions of, of Jahannam as this giant whose, whose feet are on earth and whose head is in the sky, right? Fire is personified. Uh, in some cases, uh, fire is is the medium of God. Yahweh moves on fire, uh, burns um, um, uh, people who don't obey him by fire. Right. So fire is absolutely fundamental, and, and our relationship to fire is not one of rationality. Our relationship to fire is always in the realm of the, or predominantly in the realm of um, the affective, the emotional, the nostalgic. Uh, right. Uh, uh, it's it's in storytelling. It's in rituals. Uh, it's not really part of expert systems unless you think of the combustion engine, right? You think of, of urban planning. You know, cities could not be built without fire because fire is what made bricks possible, right? Fire is what, it's what we had just mentioned it, um, you clear the forest with fire so you can build a road, right? Um, but in terms of the human relationship to fire, um, as opposed to the more social, perhaps, relationship to fire, the human relationship to fire tend to be mostly affective.
0: Yeah, I can definitely see how you're connecting these together. And I thought it's interesting also to consider how, for instance, in relation to the Beirut explosion, you know, when we think of images, although for for the explosion, it was mostly videos. Did you see a similar connection to fire as you've explained it conceptually here?
1: I don't I wouldn't call it. I I didn't think about fire when I saw it. And actually, now that I think about it, I don't know if I felt it or saw it first. because even through the proxy of Twitter, when I first saw it, I felt, I, it, I, I almost felt presence. And this is what I think um, projectile images do, right? They make you feel present. They make you feel that you're in harm's way. While I was extremely safe from harm's way, I was I was hundreds and hundreds of kilometers away. But it made me recoil, right? Why? Because you see this. Uh, what is a projectile? A projectile is something that's of course designed to harm. Nobody shoots an arrow at you because they love you, right? Um, uh, but it's also designed to overcome distance, to achieve an aim, to penetrate another body, right? And so when I think of the image of this billowing smoke so quickly, and it's not just the billowing smoke, you see the the the, the pressure wave in buildings, right? So a pressure wave, a pressure wave is invisible. But once it, 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 it collides with, with flesh, with glass, with stone, with trees, um, then it takes a shape, right? And this is when I felt uh, very overwhelmed by, by, even though I was looking at a tiny video on my, on my phone, right? Uh, so the projectile impact is really not about the technological power. It's much more about um, creating this affective connection.
0: And this is interesting because if you spoke to friends or family who were there or close to the explosion, one thing that kept happening repeatedly for several months after the blast uh, was that they had this intense need uh, to speak about where they were and what they were doing and how they felt Absolutely. when the explosion happened. I mean,
1: uh, what I tell my my American friends, uh, for particularly for Beirutis, but I think even for other lebanese, but people who are who live in Beirut who are connected to beirut it 's very much like nine eleven for Americans. You know people remember where they were, people remember what they were doing, people remember what they were worrying, people remember what they were eating right it's one of these things that's seared in your memory. Why is something seared in your memory because of the emotional shock
0: yeah, of right? course. And, uh, you know, the fact that no one has had any kind of closure on the matter in any form, you know, that, that just maintains the trauma, right? Um, OK, so I would like us to move on to I would call this a little bit more optimistic topic. Um, so as you mentioned, as we were talking about earlier, one of the things that we have seen often in the aftermath of you know all the popular movements in the Arab world is the creation of new media outlets or media channels um, that are often labeled as alternative. And I'm you know, using alternative in quotation marks here. And we saw this in Egypt. We saw this in Tunis. Um, and you know, of course, we saw this in Lebanon as well. And uh, in one of your recent works, you talk about the one specific media outlet, Megaphone. Uh, which is one of the very few truly independent online media platforms in Lebanon. So meaning it has no sectarian affiliation whatsoever. Um, and I'm a huge fan of Megaphone. It's it's the only place that I really go to get the news. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the importance of Megaphone specifically?
1: Yes. So, you know, so I I, I want to begin by saying that a lot of what I learned um, about about Megaphone, I also learned through one of my PhD students, Asil Freyha, who, who's been involved um, in the project. Uh, and this is, um, I think, one of the best outcomes that you can see when some very smart and very committed people mm-hmm. who are willing to put in the work use existing technology to enter a media sphere that is typically forbidden to them. Right if you think about um who had for example telebanon uh there were heads of militias warlords and 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 very rich people uh, which in lebanon are are it's the same oligarchy basically right so that's one the other thing uh that I think was extremely important about megaphone is the what I call the power of explanation um uh, the videos the the sort of the the procedural and how how explaining to people because very often what happens. Um, when you have highly politicized uh, uh, media, uh, I mean, you and I know if you're watching any, any television channel in Lebanon, the newscast begins with an editorial, right? So that editorial frames everything that comes next, and primes you towards certain directions. And, and, and oftentimes it's because, for example, people don't know exactly how a law is passed in Lebanon. People don't know exactly uh, the electoral law. Most people are confused about it. What's the district? What is a list? Um, how how do coalitions happen? Right. So I think uh, megaphone was a leader in creating these um, uh, videos, particularly uh, that explained processes. And once um, you bring, and video is a very powerful media, right? Because video, first of all, reaches a much larger audience than a newspaper, even a newspaper that's read on an iPad, right? So in terms of age, um, but also it has this um, it's just the message sinks in much more easily right and and I, and I think you know the measure of success that um, 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 sort of emerging media or let 's call them emergent i like I like the idea of emergence uh, they haven 't fully emerged right they 're still emerging um, is is the attempt i mean i know, not not just megaphone, but you know we have equivalents in, in Egypt and Jordan is attempts uh, by the media establishment to co-opt them. That's a, that's a very sure sign of success. Uh, the other thing that, that we have to think about is what are the constraints that they're dealing with? So, of course, uh, there are always political constraints on media work anywhere, anywhere in the world, uh, perhaps more particularly um, 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 in the Middle East. Um, but there's also, I think, <clears throat> the sort of the resource threat, right? Which is, if you don't have electrical power, To get to the building and to operate, if you don't have an internet connection, if your phone is not working, if uh, you have no gas in your car, or if you don't have money, which are all being experienced by most Lebanese as you and I speak on a daily basis, then the question becomes: Can you think of media? Still, if the basic—it's—it's very much—it's a little bit like the the sort of uh, Agamben's uh, talk about biopolitics, right? If people's existence is 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 brought down is restricted, is distilled mm-hmm. into the very basic struggle for survival. And if mm-hmm. their life can be expended, not not by, uh, you know, necessarily intentionally or not by the state, but by the sheer overall negligence, right? Mm-hmm. Car accident because there are no traffic lights, Electro- electrocution because there's a cable hanging down the street, right? Mm-hmm. All those translate this to the media sphere. Um, People want to eat before they want to correct what a minister has said, and at some point if these if these you know and that was one of the fundamental i think uh, argument in the naked blogger, which is the reason the body is so important is because the body needs to be sustained for any political action to happen so you have so you have you have the political constraints, you have these um, sort of let's call them life or material constraints, but I think in the case of Particularly in this, in the case of these outlets that rely on social media, you have the constraints of the algorithm, uh, right? Um, uh, I mean, we all know that um, there are um, equations that determine what is seen, what is visible, how visible it is, where it's seen, by whom. Um, that these outlets do not control themselves, right? And th- and I think that's a uh, that's a new kind of constraint that, in some cases, does amount to censorship.
2: You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back
1: soon. Welcome back to Looks
2: Like New on KGNU Radio. We're having a conversation with Dr. Marwan Grady about what has happened in Lebanon.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one way that scholars have described these algorithms, they call them black boxes, because we don't really understand um, how they operate. And, um, And, you know, many scholars have also... Not been allowed to study or research these algorithms to see how they function, um, but so in relation to megaphone, how would that work? Um, you think?
1: I mean, if you're releasing, if you're releasing a video, right? Um, you can you can do a lot of interesting stuff in terms of uh, shaping how it's received and who sees it, right? You can uh, where if you release it on Twitter, you can use hashtags, you can use keywords, but still ultimately. You don't have control. You don't know who your audience really is, right? Um, I follow Megaphone on Twitter. Some days it's in my face all the time, and, and then for days it disappears. Why? I don't know. I don't know. So
0: if the argument is that there are important messages being published by these platforms, that these are messages that need to be heard, whether it's about you know having voices, new voices being heard, or it's about like what we were talking about earlier: um, basic processes of a functioning country. You know, um, so if we don't even know um, if if these if these messages are reaching their intended audiences, how can we make claims regarding how useful or powerful or effective these platforms are beyond simply stating that you know these messages exist Absolutely. on these platforms? You know, um, yeah. So it makes it very difficult to 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 understand the process that is going on there. And, you know, I don't know, so basically in relation to this new sort of media production, right, um, for instance, in Lebanon specifically, we're now seeing a large number of people leaving the country, yes. traveling, immigrating, essentially a brain drain, um, largely because of the crumbling situation. So what is what I was wondering was, how can we sort of see if these people are are you know who are now in the diaspora if these people are now getting access to this kind of content compared to people who are still back home in lebanon is this something we can find out is it something that is important to find out
1: we don't know i mean i don't know uh, somebody knows but i don't know i think uh, over i think the point though that um um a lot of people are leaving and the more people leave the more i think particularly the more yeah, I think you have several kinds of people. You have the disaffected people who perhaps have had a really, uh, who who've really been harmed by what's going on, who may completely disconnect. But not often it is the case that um, we have the rise. You know, we had a great panel uh, um, um, a couple of weeks ago in which NUQ was a partner about diaspora activism, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think that's one of the uh, then that, that's one of the most important. Um, um, perhaps dimension to be further explored in terms of what social media enable, right? Which is this, this connection that, um, and I think I think in that regard, it still remains to be seen whether most of the people who are leaving, uh, are they going to be engaged? To what extent are they going to be engaged? Are they going to vote in elections? You know, that's a debate I'm, I'm going on. Uh, but I don't want to make any pronouncements because because it's not a sure thing, right? That people will. If you're angry, you can you can completely switch off, you don't you don't necessarily engage, you don't necessarily.
0: I mean, yeah, the idea that just because they're outside the country doesn't mean that it's going to change anything. Like you said, you know, they might be entirely disaffected by the entire situation. And they don't want to take any part in it. Um, yeah, there's, I think there's definitely a sense of giving up, I think, especially regarding the political situation in Lebanon. Um, You know, if we can say, like, giving up like a sense of hopelessness i think also um but at the same time there have been a few things being published um in lebanon or at least by lebanese people outside the country because i can't really tell like i don't necessarily know um and um, I don't know if you know, uh, uh, if you've seen that YouTube movie that came out recently called Aleph. Yeah. I think it was produced in France or co-produced across both Lebanon and France with teams in both countries. You know it, right?
1: Yeah, well, this is the thing, right? You can be, if, if, if your work is entirely, um, um, can be entirely performed online or on computers, let's say, and it's if it's in digital form, Right. Uh, where you are as the pandemic has shown us matters, but it matters a lot less than it used to right i mean we've seen it we've seen it for example, in the Egyptian and the Syrian uprising, what a lot of these uh what I call creative insurgents you know where i mean Berlin has probably more of them than than Beirut has right uh, and so uh, or amsterdam so so it's it's i i think it's this is an interesting dimension I think it should be explored. I think it should be documented and really researched by people who know what they're doing uh, because we risk making assumptions that turn out to be completely flawed.
0: Yeah, these assumptions usually end up uh, on on extremes, you know, either too optimistic or too pessimistic rather than, you know, showing really what's going on and seeing it as an evolving situation more than anything. Yeah. um, Yeah, and I think that's the sort of trajectory now because, you know, it's... It's not that other theories have you know have failed us in any way. It's just that they don't really offer enough of an understanding of different contexts. So we do need to kind of go beyond and see what's out there and understand it in different ways. Yes, And you know that's exciting, of course. yeah. Um, all right. so uh, we've reached the end of the episode. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Kraidi. This was a wonderful conversation. Um, and we wish you the best of luck in your future endeavors. Thank you again.
1: Uh, listen, thank you for having me. I also want to wish you, wish you the, um, the very best. Um, good luck with everything. It's not, it's not easy being a PhD student during the pandemic. So I, I, wish, you, I wish you the very, very best.
2: You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. A production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab. You can find out more about our work at colorado.edu/lab/medlab. If you liked what you heard, Please spread the word about this show and consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Leaving positive reviews will help our conversations reach more listeners. We would love to hear your comments or guest ideas. You can reach us by emailing medlab at colorado.edu. I hope you'll join us for another conversation next month.